Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, July 5th. We are recording this a little bit early this week. Uh, it's going to be a town hall episode, a mailbag, questions from listeners. I put out a tweet this past weekend and I got amazing questions, like lots of questions. Many, the show many must questions. be getting popular, Matt. We've got a lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions. And not all of them were, when is Kathy Kennedy getting fired? Which is a nice. A few of them were. A few of them were, yes. I have no inside information about Kathy Kennedy, but we're recording this a little bit early this week. Craig is getting married and will be out for the next uh, week or so at his wedding. Craig, are you excited for your own wedding? Yeah, I am. What am I supposed <laughs> to say to that? You look great. The Ozempic is really working. It's going to be it's going to be a great wedding. I, I'm very happy for you. But unfortunately, you're going to be gone for about 10 days. So we this is the last show with you for a week. And we wanted to blow it out with a town hall. So let's get right into it. Yeah, no better place to start than with Disney and a little bit of Kathleen Kennedy. So, yeah, we got a lot of Disney questions. I'm going to kind of lump three of them together here. So the first one here is from the Notorious FOX. That's their Twitter name. They ask, does Disney have a plan? What is the pathway for Bob Iger to save his legacy? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So let's lump a bunch of Disney questions into one discussion here, because I think that that is kind of one of the big narratives going on right now, mostly because Iger has not really explained how he's going to get Disney out of this situation. I think the he spent the first seven, eight months of his return to the company figuring out how to stop the bleeding, frankly. And he did about, what is it, 7,000 layoffs? Mm -hmm. uh, cutting about $5 billion in costs, fending off the activist shareholders, figuring out how to extract more money from the streaming service, canceling shows, disappearing them from Hulu and Disney+. Plus. A lot of the oh shit moves that you do when you are trying to reverse the losses that they have incurred in streaming over the past five years or so. Now he's got to articulate the way out. He's got to first, I think first and foremost, he's got to pick a successor. He said when he came back, this was a two-year gig. And if he's going to 
leave this company in 2024, he's got to really anoint someone in the next couple months, certainly by the end of the year. Is that common? Do a lot of CEOs announce their successor well in advance or no? I mean, that's sort of part of the job. It's really the failure that Iger had of his first tenure. One of the few failures was this failure to anoint a successor. And he did it several times. He had Tom Staggs, who was considered the heir apparent because he was bumped into this CFO job and he had run Parks and Consumer Products. He had Kevin Mayer, who was another executive there that was seen as a potential to take over. And he left. And Iger has sort of like shrewdly bumped these people out the door. And the perception, at least, was that he was unwilling to name a successor. Then ultimately, he had to. He picked Bob Chapek. The board didn't like him, went back to Bob Iger after a year or so of Chapek being in charge after a bunch of missteps. And here we are, where Iger's back in charge. And now we've got he's got to find a successor. The internal candidate seems to be Dana Walden who is the head of all TV there, came over with the Fox transaction. She has no experience in parks, has no experience in movies, and has no experience with a lot of the kind of upper-level CEO-type financial stuff that Iger has become good at. And they need to train her if they're going to get her into that role. And I could see Iger doing something where he says, okay, Dana or someone else, whether it may be another internal candidate or an outsider, this person is sort of my de facto successor, but I'm going to stay on for another year or so or 18 months to kind of train this person, whether I'll be CEO or whether we'll do the job together or whether I'll be executive chairman and kind of eye this person and make sure that it's a smooth transition. I don't know. But I think that's the first job. Secondly, they got to figure out movies. I mean, this has been a disastrous summer. Guardians 3 did fine. But they've now had three movies in a row this summer with Little Mermaid, Elemental, and now Indiana Jones, all of which have significantly underperformed the expectations that they had. And Disney was the king of the blockbuster era. The spend 200, 250, 300 million, when you count Indiana Jones, on these big tentpole movies blow everyone out of the water. And if the expectations for these movies are going to come down in the post-COVID box office era, then Disney's going to have to adjust. The Pixar movies cannot cost $200 million if the box office isn't going to get to $500 million. It's just pure math. So they've got to figure out whether it's consolidating Walt Disney Animation and Pixar for all the back-end stuff, which both sides have resisted, whether it's doing fewer movies, whether it's laying people off when they're not specifically working on a movie at Pixar, whether it's outsourcing some of the animation that a lot of these other companies have done, which Pixar has resisted. Something has to change at Pixar. Iger, I think, knows that. And we'll see a move, I think, in the next six to eight months on Pixar. He's got to figure out the same thing at Lucasfilm. I mean, Kathy Kennedy, I joke that she's kind of secretly loving that these other Disney movies haven't worked this summer because otherwise everyone will be clamoring for her head again after Indiana Jones because there's no reason why an Indiana Jones movie needs to cost $300 million. And, you know, the, the Willow show that they did out... Outside of Star Wars, Lucasfilm hasn't done anything. And we've talked a lot about the fact that there's no Star Wars movie for now. It's going to be seven years in theaters. And we'll see if these movies actually happen, the two that are planned for 2026. But, you know, outside of Andor, nothing has really been great in the Star Wars universe. Um, Mandalorian was they got a huge bump off of that at the beginning of, of 2019. But since then, you know, Star Wars is hit and miss. and 
Kennedy, I think, is vulnerable here. I love just winding you up and letting you go on I know. Disney and more specifically Lucasfilm. It is my hobby horse. I have an axe to grind there. Apologies to Kathy, who is a very lovely person. In you know, when you meet her, she's very nice. But I think they need some new direction there. Related question here is from David. He asks, are the box office disappointments of The Flash, Elemental, and Indiana Jones unrelated? Or are they a sign that the studios are releasing too many mega films too closely together? Great question. I think it's the latter. I think the box office has not proven that we are back to pre-COVID levels. And as we've mentioned on the show, this is the first summer where there's a lot of competition. Big movies almost every weekend. And unless they're great, like Spider-Verse or, you know, like... um, <laughs> You're pausing is a great example of what's going on at the box office right now. Yeah, unless I know great, I'm Spider-verse trying to think or... of the I, I'm trying to think of the other great movie this summer. I thought there was one that was really a fan, you know, pleaser that everyone liked, but I, I guess not. Maybe it's Guardians. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. But like we're seeing this summer, the studios are playing the hits. Another Fast and Furious, another Disney live action remake, another Mission Impossible. They're going back to what has worked. And it's not working on the same level. And I think that the competition is a factor. You know, we saw fewer movies last summer and that gave these movies runways to be hits like Minions and like Top Gun. And the glut of these movies is cannibalizing each other. I think that's exactly right. People's attention is just more divided now. We don't go to the movies twice a month anymore. And it was almost better that there were fewer movies last summer because people saw it as more of a... A once in a while occasion. And will the studios adjust? I don't know. The biggest movie of the year came out in early April, Super Mario Brothers. So, you know, maybe they'll adjust and they'll give each other some runway for these movies going forward. Yeah, spread them out. Move them into the fall. I feel like the Oscars window is dead now in the fall. That doesn't really matter anymore. Maybe the summer box office isn't as strong as it used to be and it should just be spread out throughout the year. I know. The problem is the theaters hate that because even if the movies don't gross that much on their own, in the aggregate, the summer is better for the theaters if there's more movies, so they want that. It's a tough, tough situation. All right, let's move on. All right, this is from Kim. How are decisions made inside the AMPTP? Which studios and streamers have seats on the board, and what is the power dynamic? For example, if Comcast's Brian Roberts doesn't want the entire fall season scrapped, but Netflix's Reed Hastings, even though he's not there anymore, is okay with it, how does the AMPTP reconcile that? It's a good question. Okay, a strike question. I like this. The AMPTP is the Studio Streamer Coalition, and they actually represent about 300 members. So anyone who's a guild signatory and works with the labor guilds is a member of the AMPTP. Not everyone, but a lot of them are members of the AMPTP. Now, the board of the AMPTP is made up of the majors, the Warner Brothers, Disney, Amazon Studios, Netflix. And these companies all have very different business models. You know, we've talked about it on the show, the fact that Netflix doesn't really care as much about getting these writers back to work because they have all the international stuff, all the stockpiled shows, a global pipeline, whereas companies like NBC Universal or Disney, they've got a fall schedule that they've got to worry about on ABC and NBC. They've got these late night shows that are dark and are costing them money not to have live. And it does represent a tension on this board. Now, from everything I've heard is that the dynamic is respectful. They're not like arguing in these meetings. But where push is going to come to shove is if there are multiple members who say, 
let's get this over with. Let's make a deal. Let's concede here. But streamers like Apple or Netflix or Amazon being like, no, why? Why Why would we give in on these issues, especially something like transparency that the streamers absolutely hate? Why would we give in on these issues? And then Warner Brothers will be like, because we need an effing fall schedule. That's why. And, you know, that's where the tension is going to come about. And we don't know what happens in those rooms. We don't know what happens in the mogul CEO chat room. Is it like a majority vote situation? They say no. They say it's collaborative and that there's a discussion and they come to a consensus. But I got to feel like there is some kind of a vote, even if it's informal, on what to do and how to move forward. I mean, should all of these companies even be under the same umbrella? Should Netflix, Apple, and Amazon just... That's a separate question. And there's speculation that, you know, they might break away. Netflix was not part of this coalition until recently. And they joined it because they wanted to have uniformity. They wanted to be able to make deals with all the guilds at once, which is what the AMPTB does. It exists. It is an exception to antitrust law that allows these companies to come together for the purpose of labor negotiations. You're not allowed to collude. The movie studios cannot get together and say, we will set the price of our movies and theaters at certain points. They're not allowed to do that. But for the purpose of labor negotiations, they are allowed to collude and negotiate together. But it's a tough situation because they have differing business goals. And that's what they have to reconcile right now. Okay. Next question here is from David. He says, production budgets for recent movies, even smaller scale films like No Hard Feelings, are much higher than similar movies from five years ago. Is this a short-term spike from pandemic filming or is this a trend going forward? Budget inflation has seemed higher overall. I think the short answer to that is that it is a pandemic thing. COVID and the protocols for COVID filming have added anywhere between 10 to 20%. And this is probably the last year of that, right? Mm, I don't know. I mean, some of these protocols are still in place in terms of testing. Um, They're starting to get phased out. And I think we will see some of those costs come down, but they've lasted. The guild agreement on this went way further than you know some of these other businesses out there, uh, and I think that's partially because people in Hollywood are more you know uh, um, risk averse when it comes to this stuff, and partially also because you're in close quarters with these people all the time, and they want to make sure that that they are safe. And these actors and directors have very strong guilds; they have people that represent their interests. So. I, I do think it's added a lot to the cost. I mean, when you see things like Mission Impossible costing $300 million and Indiana Jones and some of these others, that is because of COVID shutdowns as well, is that a lot of these movies, Mission Impossible in particular, was shut down like four or five times as they went around the world shooting this movie. So that's where those ads came in. But, you know, costs in overall have gone up. You know, a lot of this stuff, logistics and travel and inflation is just raised the cost of making movies just like it's raised the cost of everything else. I mean, yeah, I remember the the Nancy Myers film that got shut down from Netflix, Paris, yeah, my, my favorite million dollars. How is a rom-com one hundred fifty million dollars nowadays? Well, that's a separate issue that is above the line costs because of the streaming era and the Netflix willingness to buy out everyone's back ends, these upfront costs for stars have gone up. You know, if you want to make a rom-com with Scarlett Johansson, you're paying $20, $30 million to Scarlett Johansson. And if you do that with a bunch of stars, which is what Nancy Myers does, and you have a significant production design budget because Nancy Myers makes, you know, kitchens from outer space, 
then <laughs> you have all of a sudden a movie that's going to cost $150 million. That's another area of inflation. And it gets to the model that you use. If you have a more traditional studio model where maybe you pay Scarlett Johansson $10 million, but you give her a piece of the upside if right. the movie's a hit, then you can make the movie for a lower budget. But Netflix, because they don't do that and they buy everyone out, the budgets go up, the costs go up, and you know they save money on the other side. Even No Hard Feelings was $45 million. Yeah, well, that is another one. I've heard that Jennifer Lawrence got $20 million, $25 million even. Mm. Sony has denied that, and I have not been able to confirm it elsewhere. But the, Jennifer Lawrence got a, a certainly an eight-figure payday, probably more for that. And that's a big chunk of that budget. It just raises the cost. This is why studios don't make comedies anymore, because to make it feel theatrical, you got to get a big star. And in order to get a big star, you've got to pay a lot of money. And then the budget comes up and you've got to make your money back. And it's hard. Yeah, but how much were the peak Will Ferrell era comedies? How much did those cost? Probably 50 million, 70 million, depending on the effects. Yeah. If you're getting Will Ferrell at 20 million bucks, then you can make it for 40, 50, but like not yeah, much okay. less than that. You're right. Talladega Nights, $70 million budget. Yeah. And that was what, 15, six, 16 years ago? Yeah. So 2000 comedies, star-driven comedies, those would get up there, but they would make their money back. You know, how much did Talladega Nights made? A couple hundred million bucks. Yeah, and like, you can't do that in theaters anymore, or at least it's not a guarantee. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, this next question is from Z. They ask, what's the town's temperature on the government allowing future Hollywood mega mergers? Everyone thinks more consolidation will happen, but the government appears to be more active than ever in challenging these. See Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House and Microsoft Activision. Yeah, I think right now the Biden administration has made it pretty clear that they are going to look very closely at any consolidation, especially in high-profile industries. I mean, if you look at the reference to Simon & Schuster merger, that was a book merger that, you know, would have taken a buyer out of the market. But most people said, you know, it still left three. And it wasn't something that certainly not the Trump administration or even others would have challenged. But what they did is they looked at the market for authors and taking a buyer out of the ecosystem for authors, they found, would have caused harm to those authors. And they got people like Stephen King to testify saying, you know, this is how we make money is when there are multiple buyers, multiple bidders for our projects and taking one out is bad for authors. And that's how Lena Khan, who's running the FTC and some of these other 
very anti-monopoly figures are looking at these mergers. When you evaluate a merger, you try to look at the harm from the merger. And it depends entirely, first, what you define as the market that they're in. You know, you could look at something like two studios merging, if let's say Warner Discovery and NBC Universal merged. You could say, okay, well, what is the market they're in? Are they in the studio market or are they in the general content market? How you define that market influences how you look at these mergers. Because if you say NBC Universal and Warner Discovery are competing with Apple and competing with YouTube and competing with all these much bigger companies, then maybe that merger makes sense from a competitive standpoint. But if you say, oh, it's taking a buyer out of the Hollywood content entertainment ecosystem, then you look much more skeptically at that merger. And I think the perception right now is that the Biden administration, at least this term, is not going to allow any of these major consolidations. Apple buying Disney? No way. Never going to allow that. So most people I've talked to said that they're probably going to wait until after the 2024 election to see how that shakes out and what the FTC is like before pursuing this. And we did a great episode on this last week with Matt Stoller, uh, where we basically talked about monopolies in Hollywood for an entire episode. He is very anti-monopoly. And that's if you want that position, he's great on it. And he makes the case that actually Hollywood has consolidated too much and that it should be broken up. The opposite opinion is is a lot in a lot of the C-suites these days. Sure. Which is that nobody can make money on streaming. So we've got to consolidate and do it so that there's two or three global streamers. Then you can make money. But he sees a lot of downside from that. And I tend to agree with him. All right. Next question here is from Angel Emoji. I don't, they don't have no name. It's just a, an emoji of an angel. They ask, the newest Wes Anderson movie will be available on digital in nine days after only just entering theaters and exceeding financial expectations. Can you walk us through the logic behind the creation of PVOD slash streaming windows for successful films? It's a good question. That is a good question. And it's interesting that they chose the Wes Anderson movie because yeah. that's that's being released by Focus, which is a division of Universal, which is a division of NBC Universal, which is a division of Comcast. <laughs> and Comcast is a big cable provider. And Comcast has been extremely aggressive about windowing. Basically, Universal said during the pandemic that they're going to stop giving the theaters a 90-day window on all their movies, which had been traditional. They're going to move to a 45-day window to put them on Peacock, the streaming service. And they're going to introduce this PVOD window that's premium video on demand, which means that they're going to become available for digital rental or purchase at a higher price in as little as 17 days. Which is what? Essentially the price of a movie ticket, but just at home. Yeah, sometimes it's like 20, 25 bucks, depending on the movie. But you can get it at home after 17 days. And sometimes even shorter, but I, I, it, for most movies, it's that. Now, that is a big deal, obviously, because it undercuts the theaters. But what they did is they gave the theaters a little bit of a cut of that revenue. Oh, in order to incentivize them to go along with it. And they just did a New York Times story a couple weeks ago where Universal was bragging that they had made a billion dollars in extra revenue by doing this. So even though it undercuts the theaters a little bit, they are making more money overall because they take a bigger cut of the PVOD revenue than they do of the theatrical revenue. And they can utilize the Comcast cable systems and others to promote that. And they've found it to be a great business. I'm not 100% sure why 
more of the other studios haven't followed in that direction. I mean, Warner's has a big bet on theatrical right now, and then their movies go to max. And Disney has these movies that, you know, they only make the tentpole style movies. So they have a big bet on that as well. And then their movies go to Disney Plus. But we're seeing with movies, especially the focus movies, where even if they're not successful in theaters, Universal at least claims that they make their money back on this PVOD window. It makes sense for movies like a Wes Anderson film or some type of Paul Thomas Anderson movies or, you know, the directors who aren't making real like blockbuster style movies. Yeah, people want to watch this at home. Yeah, you're marketing it for 10 days in theaters. People can see it. It can get word of mouth. You'll see the advertising. And then you can say, hey, I don't have to go to the theaters. I'll spend 20 to 25 bucks, which is what it would cost anyway to go to a movie and watch it at home. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. And I get why they don't want to do it for major movies like a Guardians of the Galaxy because of how much money they can make in theaters. But for a Wes Anderson film, I actually think it makes perfect sense. And it's kind of this middle gray area between streaming and theatrical. Right. If you're willing to pay 20, 25 bucks at home, you can watch it after a couple weeks in theaters. Or you can go see it right away. Or you can wait 45 super days. super fans will go see it right away. But I mean... Yeah. Or people who it. want an experience and want to get out of the house or whatever. And then you wait 45 days and you can see it on Peacock. Okay. Last question here. This is from MNYC. They want you to predict which streamer is the first to ditch its model and go with licensing just like Sony. Licensing only, I mean. First of all, that's a trick question because there already is one that's pursuing this. I mean, if you look at what Lionsgate is doing right now, Lionsgate has stars as its affiliated streamer. They are looking to split stars and Lionsgate into two separate entities. So I think you're going to see Lionsgate essentially going the Sony route after that with their movies. They'll do an output deal and they'll do you know other deals to try to maximize revenue. They call it the arms dealer strategy where you deal your movies and your shows to all different buyers. Sony has had success in that. The reason why you see movies like a Man Called Otto, and some of the other Sony movies on Netflix is because Sony is that arms dealer. They don't have their own affiliated service, so they do a massive deal with Netflix to get their movies into streaming. And if you look in the top 10, a lot of times they are the Sony first-run movies that are now going directly to Netflix because Sony is the only studio of the majors that will sell them directly to Netflix. And I think Lionsgate will go the same route. They'll try to extract the most revenue. They want to be bought and they'll try to increase their value that way. But what about anybody else? Could Universal say, screw it, we're not doing this. And NBC can say, we're not doing Peacock anymore. We're shuttering Peacock and we'll just license all of our movies elsewhere. No, I don't think they will because the play for NBC Universal, I think, is to merge, is to acquire or be acquired or spin off something into a new entity that will have more and will be able to compete. I don't think that if you are in the television business as heavily as they are with the NBC and NBC Universal Cable Networks, I don't think you can just decide to not be in streaming. That's a kind of short-sighted. And I, I just think that it, it would be a retreat. It would be backing away from the future. And none of the majors want to do that until they are forced. Now, I think there'll be perhaps some downsizing. You know, if Disney consolidates Hulu into Disney Plus, they can downsize a lot of that. Hulu can become a tile and they can incorporate it as an upsell. And we're already seeing that with what Paramount Plus is doing with Showtime. Showtime as a standalone entity is slowly dying. It has now been 
absorbed into Paramount Plus. You can get Paramount Plus with Showtime. So I could see that happening with something like Hulu. But the two that might do it or would be the biggest candidates would be Paramount Plus and Peacock. And I don't see them just throwing up their hands and giving up. Okay. Well, last question here. Uh, we're going to f- end it with a, uh, a call sheet. Mission Impossible. Dead Reckoning Part 1. Speaking of Paramount, the line is at 85, right? That's the early box office line, 85 million? The line is at 87. 87. For, but that's for the five-day. Because wow, it low. opens on a Wednesday. So I think we have to go with the five-day here because it's not like there's a holiday weekend. It's just opening on a Wednesday just because. Um, it's actually because Tom Cruise wants IMAX screens for longer than one week. <laughs> right. So before Oppenheimer takes him over. I wonder if he enjoyed Oppenheimer and Barbie. Well, didn't you follow his Twitter? He's yeah. very excited for all of them. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the fact that everyone found out, thanks to me, that he was lobbying to take all the premium large format screens because he was pissed about losing the IMAX screens. But he just loves cinema. Just he loves does. it. I just imagine him sitting there, not blinking, smiling for two hours and 40 minutes watching Oppenheimer. <laughs> I, I I think he like raises his hands up and just like absorbs the movie. Like Zenu <laughs> helps him like, channel the energy yeah it's his photosynthesis that's how he lives that's how he gains strength it is it is he doesn't like some some aliens eat babies he just like basks in the glow of the silver screen (laughs) so are you taking the over under 87 for five days am i crazy or is that low for five days for mission impossible it's not that low fallout only opened to 61 million and that was in late july of 2018 it didn't have that five days. So it's about the same if you look at what Fallout did. I think the Top Gun effect is going to be in force here. And there are a lot of people that are going to come to this movie that maybe did not see the previous missions uh, or at least haven't seen them in a long time because they had a great time at Top Gun. So I am going to take the over on 87, but it's not going to be. I don't think it'll be get to 100. Mission Impossible plays older. It just has. And it doesn't have the Top Gun feel of, oh, man, this is the first Top Gun movie in 30 years. It also, you know, the reviews, the early reviews have been fine. They say it's a quality installment, but they have not been as ecstatic as the Top Gun reviews were. Do you know how long it is? I don't. Do you? It's two hours and 43 minutes. Oh, Jesus. And this is part one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a part two movie. It's a two-part movie. So. God, I just wish they would know. I wish there was like, there needs to be like a luxury tax. Like teams go over a certain threshold of salary. They have to pay a luxury tax. There should be a luxury tax for movies. If it's over two and a half hours, you got to pay, like you got to maybe lower the price of admission or you got to pay the stars even more. Something to incentivize these studios to just say no. Or how about something to incentivize the the damn fans to go? Maybe make the tickets cheaper. I know that doesn't make any sense, but. God, two hours and 43 minutes. No, if, if anything, they would increase the price because I know, they but... get fewer showings. <laughs> I'm taking the under on 87. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, I you know, Tom, like, I know you love watching yourself jump off of the edge of, of buildings and cliffs, but like, man, just give us a break. Give us, let us, we have lives. We got other things to do. Yeah, speaking of other things to do, I got to go Yeah, speaking married. of other things to do, Craig will go get married, come back in a week or two. Have a great wedding. I will be there. I'll be the guy cheering the loudest on the side. Enjoy all the ABBA music, Matt. Yes, I will. Did, are you getting the ABBA hologram at your wedding? 
it, it just was outside our budget, unfortunately. <laughs> Little disappointed. I want I wanted full ABBA experience at your wedding. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, our editor Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 